Välkomna till kvällens program. Ett eh, samtal mellan intendent Tessa Braun och konstnären för kväll Mika Rottenberg som vars utställning ni har säkerligen sett här i, på Magasin 3. Jag heter Liv Stolz. Jag är vikarierare istället Sara Källström för program och pedagogik. Och det här är vårens första program. En Mika We would like to welcome you to this talk. It's been a pleasure to see this exhibition just grow to uh, such a, a great exhibition. And it was such a, a pleasure to see all the people here yesterday. So now I just uh, leave the word to Tessa and you can start, so thank you. Thank you. Mika, uh, this is your last day in Stockholm. Maybe. Because there's a blizzard in New York, so maybe I'll stay. <laughs> oh, that would be very nice, so that you don't have to work all the time, because we're, gonna make, we're actually making you work until the bitter, bitter end. <laughs> so, I wanted to start, first of all, also, like Liv said, that it's been really uh, amazing to work together with you on this exhibition, because it's something that has been really evolving over time. Um, you've been here in Stockholm before, and we've been working on the layout of the exhibition and that was really the major first thing that you and I had to deal with and to choose the works and then to find a good way of how to present these works in the exhibition space here. And uh, something that I really appreciated with this process was to try to adapt your works to our spaces. And uh, since you work so really physically in the space and in creating these environments for all of us to enter into physically walking into your world. Uh, I thought this was really um, both fun and very interesting to work on with you. There is something that you often do when you present your works is that you do video installations and you use different elements from your films and they can be seen also in the space, in the rooms, out here in the exhibition. Like the lowered ceiling, the textures on the walls, the cardboard boxes. How do you work with this? Yeah, I think, you know, it started from different reasons, but I, it's, it's um, to kind of bring back this physical aspect that's very strong for me in the videos. And I always think about the videos as, as sculpture and using light or film as another media, medium within the sculpture. Always really important for me to be really particular about the way it's shown. And also it started because, you know, as an emerging artist, a lot, and when you do videos, a lot of times your work is just kind of, the format is not really considered when, when you talk about video, which is a little bit, uh, ridiculous because you know it's like showing a painting in the dark in a small format you know it's not this painting should have the right light and the right size of what the artist chose to do the painting and I found it in video a lot of the time it was um, disregarded which is maybe right for maybe certain videos from the 70s that are that are more conceptual or uh, the beginning of the the medium but my interest was as I said more sculptural so it was really important for me and, you know, it was a way to also make sure I have a decent space in a group show. And, um, and also because the, the work is so much for me about architecture and or maybe like 
being kind of imposed, a structure imposed on you, if it's architecture or your body uh, or like a social architecture uh, system or anything. So it was very important to actually make that physical by creating maybe a little bit of these oppressive architectural spaces that the viewer would walk through. But when do you start to think about this part of the work? I mean, you often create... In the end. In the end? Yeah. yeah. It's always, you know, when I start making a show and then... When I started making a new piece and then four or five months before, you know, the curator, like, so, what's how are we going to show it? It's like, ah! I, I, that really <laughs> comes after... Really, the first aspect is making the video and developing that and shooting and editing and then doing the sound. And then in the end, it almost becomes clear mm. how it should be shown. Like I don't really think about it. It's almost, it becomes obvious, the format. And sometimes it changes. I mean, actually, most, in most of the works, the first time I show it is kind of a tryout. And then the second time is a little better. You develop the pieces yeah. from time to time. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah. I feel like every time I have to change it a little bit, which is really hard if you want to streamline production like that. But that's and also the, the nice travel. thing, that you actually adapt it to the space where yeah, you yeah, are exhibiting. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's There's really not nice. really a way around it. Maybe I don't, I don't think there is at this point. Well, we are just now we have an image here of a site-specific sonography or a kind of site-specific work for the exhibition non -work. here. Non-work. It's a non-work, non exactly. <laughs> we decided that this would not have a title uh, for some reason, but it's definitely is an artwork and it reminds me very much of the structures that you build when you actually do your films mm -hmm. because you you work in a big studio often in Harlem and you construct often with your own hands or together with carpenters and people that help you to to create these environments where you then actually do the filming uh, with your characters and uh, this one we kind of had an idea, or you had the idea, of uh, what it would be here in Magazine 3, this kind of hidden room, and it actually became smaller and much more claustrophobic, I would say, here on the site than we, than we thought from the beginning. And since it also has this moving fan, and this kind of that you are invited to look into it, but you can't really see everything, it's almost as if there is someone down there maybe working, or there is just a pause. Uh, and this really has such a filmic sense to it somehow. It is, it is almost as like a few seconds from one of your films, mm -hmm. although it is an installation. So yeah. it's like your films are very much sculptures, and while your installations often really have this filmic sense to it, it's a really interesting like double play there. I was, I was really happy with the way it turned out. You know, it was kind of something that was built itself to the whole layout of the show. Yeah, I think there's always this flatness that I'm interested in. Mm. The space, a lot of the times, maybe something looks like a window, but it's a poster, or something looks like it's a poster, but it's a window. And I think this kind of has that, because from far it looks like a weird uh, flat screen mm -hmm. or something. So mm. I think it creates for the exhibition maybe this sense of depth too. Um, Maybe what it does is then when you look at the video, because this is real, when you look at the videos, maybe you think that that's kind of real too, you know, because... That the like characters almost, actually are yeah, there. Yeah, there is a window and you actually look into a space that maybe create, mm -hmm. kind of cheats the eye a little bit to think, you know, because I think if you stand in a certain, like where you see Tropical Breeze and you see that and you see Time and a Half, these three videos, then 
because this is a real space, then those become real spaces mm -hmm. too, or, or kind of it blends it between the real f space and the cinematic space, and that kind of what's cool. Well, I think here also becomes very obvious how you work with the with the textures. Maybe you can say something about that. Yeah, but that's why at first the room became smaller because yeah. I was really intimidated by <laughs> doing all that big wall. Yeah, yeah, so I was like, let's put walls, and actually it ended up being in a way more stucco because the walls. Yeah. I didn't. I miscalculated. It was not because so much of laziness. Sleep. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but how? Where does that come from? I mean, these kind of uh, textures. Where you can kind of imagine that they somehow exist somewhere, but not as obvious and maybe as thick and uh, mm. yeah. I think it's like this creating this um, like hyper tactile space. Maybe your body, kind of your hands, kind of want to touch it, and maybe you are in a state of more like alertness or something. I don't know. Like you immediately would, I would want you to to think about how it would feel to touch it or to lick it or something, and then. Again, when you watch the video or when you walk into the in the environment, you maybe are more aware of your edges, you know, and of your body and and your like your own relationship to the space and and it is from a little bit like sort of like a memory, you know. Like I look a lot at the cores of like Chinese takeout restaurants or restaurants that there's no like these spaces that nobody really there's like almost like used uh, cultural references that are being replicated so many times that they kind of become their own aesthetic weird mutation thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those textures are a little bit that. It's like a memory of like, oh, I've seen this wall somewhere, but when I go and see the wall, it doesn't, it's not really exactly like that. But. but for me, now that you also actually mentioned these, uh, these restaurants in, in New York, do you live in New York since many years back? Yeah. Uh, you're born in Argentina and you grew up in, in Israel. Uh, and so to me, the more I get to know your work and having seen these pieces, there is so much New York present in it. It feels like New York is really your, the biggest inspiration for your works. Yeah, uh, in a way, yeah. Yeah, because it's this uh, center for all different cultures. You have the Asian culture, you have more the, from the Orient, from the Middle East, from, uh, you have the American culture of fast food. And, and so there's just so many different things that kind of come together also in your in your works and everyone's workaholics and con those constant um, movement and, and that so yeah I think so I think so like, like you yeah. also working 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 <laughs> yeah. maybe I wanted to stop here with the tropical breeze uh, this is one of your earlier works and it is here shown in a container in a container that is made out of uh, wood which we found was really nice since we're located here in the Freeport yeah here, maybe if we can talk a little bit about your interest in in labor and uh, in producing different objects and things, because for me this is really somehow a, a condensed. It's like a crash course a little bit of uh, what you uh, want to do with your work, mm -hmm. and you said at a point that this is for you. You were thinking about how a factory, everything could be kind of condensed in, in one unit somehow with mm -hmm. the production and the delivery of products. Yeah, I mean, the first idea was to make a factory that's already in the truck, so that's fresh, so it's made to save room. You would actually make the factory and, and, have, and, and the delivery at the same time. It's and hard. also because it's uh, sweat, it needs to be fresh because stale sweat is not so great, but fresh sweat maybe is a bit nicer. So 
That was maybe, the idea. Maybe you should just shortly say what, what it's actually about uh, here in the film. It's a factory to make moist tissue papers, and they are made by packaging Heather Foster's sweat. She is a bodybuilder, and she's also the truck driver. So everyone kind of has this dual role to, to be really efficient. Um, yeah, I feel like it was a beginning of... Um, it's maybe the first piece... I kind of looked back at my work. The piece before that was uh, Time and a Half and Julie, and I kind of noticed that there is this kind of recurring theme of, of work or labor, and then I started reading Marx, and that piece was really kind of a way to, um, to think about the... almost to illustrate the, the theory of, of the value, time and value. Like here, you do these uh, drawings that you also uh, we've made some uh, bigger versions of your drawings yeah. here on. on but the it was ball. a little bit of like a, a joke for me, kind of to create this uh, very kind of dry schematic kind of idea of, of how value is created. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about use value and used tissues and le like labor and leisure. Like she's a bodybuilder, which is. I mean, her muscles are not because she's actually working with her body. She's working out, which is more like something you do after work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And jogging, you know, the guy that's jogging, that's naked too. And, and also I was thinking a lot about these um, closed economic systems, like the Amish people, for example, or the kibbutz that are that kind of based around maybe some kind of ideology, but, uh, and they usually produce a product that then gets sent outside of that utopian kind of um, community. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create my own utopian community, economic system. And so that's what they are. In, so in this world, for example, energy boosters are sold instead of ice cream in the street by this woman with a parrot and there's a naked jogger. And, and everyone is really proud and, and useful uh, and are doing things. You actually try to, to sell these tissues that, yeah, they, that are eBay. wet wipes that are yeah, yeah. wet because they have been drained in, in yeah. Heather's sweat. Yeah, and I wanted to create a situation where also um, her fans, Heather's fans, will buy it or art collectors to create a product uh, that's a product for, and an art piece at the same time. I thought that could be interesting. Also a dual kind of thing. And how did it go? Nobody wanted it. Uh, <laughs> I think that's so bad. <laughs> and I just got one email saying, I mean, it was a long time ago. It was, I haven't really shown my work. And, but I priced it quite high. It was like $500 for a sweat of... Because also we calculated how long it would really take for her to sweat that much. So it was by her... And she gets paid about $200 an hour. Mm -hmm. So the calculation was that she has about two and a half hours in each box. So then that would cost $500. <laughs> and, um, yeah, one person asked me why would they pay $500 for uh, used tissues. And I was like, well, you don't get it, obviously. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> but you, you mentioned before uh, that you were reading Marx, and, and when we've been talking, you've been talking more about his, uh, his theories about labor, more from a poetic point of view. Yeah. Um, I mean, even in, like, in, Ca in Capital, he has, in the first volume, there's a like, really description of uh, some, how you would uh, create double value, you know. And of course, it's like a completely different industrial kind of society that's now, but if someone is working simultaneously on two wheels, mm -hmm. so they can actually produce double the amount of yarn. Mm -hmm. um, all these descriptions of, of this very physical labor and how something, I mean, he describes labor as a process between uh, man and nature. That's like the kind of classic definition of labor. And I was just interested in, in that 
yeah, almost as an artist, you know, almost as the, this relationship between a person and the material, and this process of like mastering your brain into an object, so the object kind of becomes part of you, that kind of like subject-object relationship, a little bit more so more like a psychological mm -hmm. aspect too, because um, I think there's always also this psychological and this so idea of like the fetish, like Marx's uh, definition of the fetish and then Freud's definition of, of fetish and how I think in a lot of the work, it's like there, it's both, that those two kind of psychological fetish or like a social fetish. These products that are produced in these works, it's the, the wet wipes, it's the, the Mary's cherries, which are maraschino cherries that are made out of fingernails. Mm. We will get to that in a, in a moment. There is also dough, although dough is a bit different. Um, I mean, they're always kind of either very, very like normal, banal objects, or actually something completely ridiculous, almost. I mean, something or an art piece or, or an a art sculpture, piece. sculpture uh, in squeeze. Th that's right. Okay. Yeah, but but I mean, they're the the choice of products. These very products that, yeah, obviously no one, one, one really <laughs> wants to buy, is of course something that has to do with that you're really interested more in the production process and not kind of the result. Yeah, or the mystery. A lot of the times you would see, like, I don't know, like a strange product. I looked a lot online and uh, maybe there is a picture here of like, um, these pheromones, you know, little like condensed sweat that I don't is think sold uh, or... This thing is called pump and pose, which is this fatty thing that you inject into your muscles. It's for bodybuilders, and you all get inflated, and you can't move, but you ha you look really strong, but you actually can't really do anything. So these strange products that have this kind of maybe this fiction like behind them, like a mystery them. around them, and I thought, oh, it'd be so interesting to kind of imagine, like actually make that visual, mm. how that those things are made, the, the story behind them. And also s always the, the connection to that actually our bodies, what they're capable of doing and, and how, how that can produce some kind of product or value. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, I see here that one of the next images is actually showing this Heather, who is the driver in Tropical Breeze. Of course, people wonder about these, these characters in your, in your films or in your works. And you find them on the internet often, or you get inspired by someone that you see when you walk on, kind of on the streets? Or yeah, I mean, in a lot of the, the work, maybe the more recent work, the more earlier work, and also the recent work is, um, in the more recent work, it was important to work with people that already advertise themselves and their bodies to hire. I would hate actually approaching people on the street, because it's really important for me that they already are conscious of something that they... Own, like they kind of treat their bodies as as um as an or like something that they own uh and they consciously alienate part of it and offer it for to to hire so that's always a relationship that's interesting to me in that it, they already want to be seen a, a certain way mm -hmm. and then like they're being kind of exhibitionist and me being a voyeurist it creates this like symbio symbiotic relationship that it's not really sure who's exploiting who. Maybe I'm exploiting them or maybe they're exploiting me. But we all get happy in the end. So. <laughs> yeah, they seem to be really happy. I mean, you can uh, see, not at the moment, but both here in the entrance and also on our website, you can actually see some interviews with these, uh, some of these women. And they're all so um, really powerful and they, they're just so confident in themselves and even in their 
what might be uh, in our society seen as something that is a little bit being other or different. And what really struck me with your works is that when I look at these films and I because you go so close often with your camera and you really you, you have in the same film you have someone who is extremely big and you have someone who is very very tall and at the same time it doesn't make me feel bad that I actually watched them mm -hmm. I don't know how you really do that mm -hmm. but uh, I would never look at these people in the same way or just look at them at all for that long time if I would see them on the street or on the bus but I think it's they're doing it I'm not really doing much besides um, aiming the camera or not me actually I, I always work with a cinematographer most of the work was shot by Maya Tusi he's great friend and we've been collaborating on, on that for a long time yeah I think it's just the way they carry themselves and they would actually want you to look at them I think I mean if unless you do it in a you know mean way uh, I think they they understand their their difference and they capitalize on it which and, and you know they turn it it's like alchemy they turn something that could be like a handi a handicap into mm. gold <laughs> Yeah, so. which is really wonderful. Like in this case, Mary's Cherries, you chose to work with fantasy wrestlers. Yeah. How did you <laughs> what is fantasy wrestling? Yeah, you can maybe say <laughs> something about that. Yeah. Uh, fantasy wrestling is when you hire someone to wrestle with you privately and you also tell them if you want to win and lose. Yeah, that's basically... And how did you choose fantasy wrestlers exactly for this piece, Mary's Cherries? Um, it wasn't... It was more about the action of I was interested in... as you can see before Rock Rose, she has on her website her hour rates and all that. So I was just interested in her offering her body for for hire, as I said. And so it was less important what she does in her day job. It was more important that she advertises herself that way. Also, this uh, actually how you work with these talents. You call them talents, or the people that you find. Um, you don't really work with them as a film director, maybe not a yeah. like conventional film director. You you more give, you give them instructions or what do you tell them before you start a production? How much do you reveal about what you want to tell? What, what is the story? Or do you maybe you don't even know that yourself at that point? Yeah, at that point, I mean, I think they're the first ones that I tell exactly what's going to happen. Mm. So that's really good for me because it uh, makes it, the piece becomes a little clearer for me once I have to describe it to them. It's usually very, I mean, this, you know, it's easy to explain. It's a factory for merchino cherries and they're made from fingernails and there's like three, you know, um, floors and that are, I just describe what happens and it makes perfect sense for them mm -hmm. uh, in a way, you know, and that's it. <laughs> and then you, you told me also that sometimes you do, like you throw things to them yeah I mean I never want them I'm really disappointed when I have to tell them how they how to feel or anything I really try to create the environment where they'll react rather than act mm -hmm. you know it's really their body kind of responding to different sounds or things thrown at them or, or, or that and that's a way to yeah I never want them to to pretend like no. they're something it's really there has to be like an this authentic reaction of the body and that's why also, I guess, they always have their own names, right? Uh, yeah. In the films, more. Yeah. More yeah. Than I see here are some images of uh, the film Doe. And um, here, there, you created this 
crazy factory where there are lumps of dough that are being produced. And um, here you talked a lot about how it is much more, not really about the product, you were more, much more interested in how you could actually divide or make like an own uh, system of um, yeah, like value unit. and units. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in that uh, kind of sketch over there. I wanted to, if the other two the pieces, Tropical Breeze is about my own product, the Tropical Breeze tissues, and then Mary's Cherries is about this fiction around an existing product, I wanted to not create a product, but create a unit. It, is, it does really work like that. There's always the same amount of dough in the machine, but all these, the, the processes inflate it, and then what the excess, the surplus, gets packaged, and that basically becomes this kind of unit that will, that will contain all the work that was done. So it's, in a way, like a surplus unit or something. Surplus unit. But um, here again, going back, this is uh, Raki. Mm -hmm. um, or like entropy, like everything. I mean, because everything is, there is no entropy in a way. I mean, in the fantasy, like everything is, is contained in the system and everything is used in a way to inflate the value of this mm -hmm. dough. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, dough is a thing for money. Yeah. So it was kind of funny to think about that. Like it's, and I would say, oh, I made so much dough that summer. You know, I make so much dough because I was actually literally making tons of dough and not that much money. So it was like uh, trying to, to see how much it would stretch. Mm -hmm. you know, because it was, it had a very small studio, but it was this uh, tall studio, but um, small. So I built these three floors. And I constantly, me and Katrine, sometimes me alone would just try to like, like spill the dough from the top and just see how much it would uh, stretch. That, now that you talk about stretching and... And, and get advice from like bakers and pizza makers and like everything. And what was the best dough? Which one? The, and the best dough is really particular. It's about when you make it. It was just uh, water, flour and oil, like a lot of oil. Uh, no yeast or anything like that. That really makes it tear. And it's about how you kind of mix it and then the temperature is really mm -hmm. important. And, and at the day of the shoot, Raki was there. And the thing didn't come out. We had so much, like a huge lump of dough that had to go through this small hole, but it was a little too cold, the dough, so it just wouldn't come. And we were like, for two hours, like watching it. That's why you actually see it. And she says, I see it. And it was really, re like, she actually said, I see it, because we were like, just there, like waiting for like two hours and it did, for it to it come down. And it then come. it came down. Yeah. It got a little uh, warmer in August. This so is also so nice to see how you work with the shape and, and uh, actually the, the shape of these pieces the shape of uh, the product, in this case the, the dough, how all that somehow um, has a connection. That in here in this case where uh, Raki is working the dough, um, it is very kind of super big and, and just kind of goes over all the uh, angles of the, um, of the table. While when uh, Tall Cat, uh, I don't think there is an image right now about it, but the, the dough becomes very, very thin mm -hmm. and and it's always this relation, um, the body and, and the, the body. Yeah, like there's no separate, kind of everything. That's why in also a lot of the work, uh, there's like a magic kind of, in, in time and a half, suddenly the plate flies, or in squeeze uh, by like a telekinesis, she's making the space move. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's the kind of primary stage of having no, no, no definition of self and no separation between the self and space mm -hmm. uh, and outer space. So... That's why the object kind of can assume your shape, 
because it, you're the same. You know, everything is, there is no self and object. It's like this kind of, this nice m merging or something. That's when you really work as a sculptor because you just mm -hmm. measured the people and the, yeah. the things, everything just by size and, and shape, yeah. literally. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think I'm a very good screenwriter because there's, in Dove, there's just two, there's two words. That's like the longest screenplay that I wrote. Yeah. And it's uh, hello and I see it. That's, that's enough. <laughs> we see amazing things happening in this film. Here is Tall Cat, and here is actually Tall Cat. She is over two meters and 15. Yeah, she's 6'9", so it's two meters and 20 centimeters. This is a very good picture, I think, where you can see how yeah. tall and she is. And the thing is, what happened was, and it was kind of conscious, I mean, I was kind of shooting myself in the foot because I was, as I was building these rooms, especially for them, like making outfits for them, their extraordinary extremity got um, equalized because the room is very tall and everything is to her size. And also Raki, she said, oh, I look so thin. Um, because in the, the structure? Room, yeah, or? because the room is built for her. Mm -hmm. So you don't, especially with Kat, you don't see how tall she is. Yeah, you do, I think. Yeah, but in the, in the video, you don't no. see it. And in a way, it was... But you can know. see it just by the fact that she has these very... Yeah, you can feel something, can feel I feel, something that's uh, maybe strange with the size, but yeah. you don't really see how extreme. It actually reduces their extremity. Yeah. Well, yeah. now that we're here still in a factory, um, factories, I mean, there are so many like machines and things that you build and you, you, they're all kind of made out of paper or cardboard and you, you see that it's not really... Um, I mean, it is functioning, of course, but I don't know how it would be working if this really would be a factory. I would say maybe this is a little bit something that... It's really great to see that you are working with this in, in this way because it is about... It's kind of a little bit boyish, you know, to have this... Make all these little machines and uh, um, one thing is leading to the next and um, really kind of playing around with um, just having fun. It just looks... <laughs> Like you're having so much fun when you're doing these works. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it is very, fun. Very playful. And a lot of the times, I kind of design it, and I st and I I'm actually really bad in um, creating mechanisms. Um, <laughs> so Katrine, that you know that yeah. she she's has been a really dear friend, and she's always like, I was like, so I want to do this thing, and and she's like, always really wanted it to work, and I always don't really want it to work. I just want it to kind of cheat it after in the editing because that I actually do. So I am less interested in create because it's always a compromise. If you actually create a mechanism that would really work, the mechanism will come before the feeling of it, like how, how it looks. So it's always the, this... Um, it's more the look that kind of decides. Oh, not the look because it does. it's more like a very basic movement, like mm. uh, spinning or going from left to right, like horizontally. It's a, it's a, basic thing but when there is like a mechanism that would really really has to work it's always like really um mysterious for me and i think that's why i do it to kind of uh figure out the mystery or something yesterday i got the question from several people actually if if you when you grew up somehow had access to some kind of factory or if that comes from and it was so interesting that i got yeah. this question from very different people. Uh, not Is really, not no. not particularly. No, I mean, I was used to work in um, 
milking a cow like in the summer in a kibbutz, <laughs> you know. But uh, no, I think it's really a metaphor. I think there, I get this question a lot, and it's it's not about factory work, you know. It's about I think factory work is um, is a metaphor for living in a way, or like moving with your body and producing stuff, and and it's not directly about that. No, but. Since it's, you say it's not about that, and of course these kind of works are not about trying to analyze exactly what it is about, because I think that is also one of the really great things with your works, that you don't understand everything, and, and, it's, and that is just completely fine, because there are so many other things that you can um, appreciate, or you can appreciate it in so many other ways. Uh, it's the surreal part, it's the, the humor, it is, um, you can really feel that you are engaged when it comes to labor or uh, issues about, I think, our society. It, like these, these factories or these um, societies that you create, these worlds, is this, it's in some way, like a critique against how things are being produced today or how we consume uh, products or like what is your it's approach? It's not really, it's an observation, I guess. It's not really a critique. I mean, of course, I can, it's easy to criticize, you know, and it's obvious how much wrong, you know, there is. Um, but I'm not sure that's my place as an artist. It's really about sometimes being sad. Like in Squeeze, for example, I'm, I was really thinking about all these products that are made and never really get used mm. because they get there's so much of them in certain part of the western world that it's just they get go to trash immediately so there's this use there's use value there's a potential and never really gets fulfilled so it's a little bit get like this like um, poetically sad or something that there is all these like uh, oh makeup you know like there's so much makeup that just get thrown before it actually fulfills uh, this promise of making someone beautiful so I was, you know, thinking about that and more just trying to make it visual. Um, you know, there's all these transactions that are happening all around the globe and it's never, it's always this magical wires, you know, the telephone, all these things that I, most people don't even know how it works. And there's all these uh, structures that are, don't really have a shape. And I was thinking, I think it would be cool to create a real uh, building that would almost take these, pull out all these, spaces from people from all around the world and actually put them, make these connections that are invisible and transactions mm -hmm. that are invisible into like a, a, a solid, materializing it, kind of making it into something that's that physical. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the times it is really like, oh, if something, if, if that's a way to measure value, let's say, then maybe, so used tissues are very valuable because of, because they have all this time and all this uh, story behind them, so. The time uh, invested by the person yeah. who has made it. And, yeah. yeah, so they are va they are valuable. So a lot of time for me, the work is maybe an experiment, mm -hmm. and especially in squeeze, uh, it is around this making of an art object, mm. and the art object is removed, and what you have is just the process around making it, and or more maybe the process of making it valuable, and like how you make value, like how do you create value into like a, a pile of crap, how that becomes worth suddenly like millions of dollars because it's an art piece. So there is that ma magic there and maybe that piece is trying to, to analyze in a way that magic somehow. Like in my own attempt, it's not really like analyzing in a academic no. sense. No. You know. This uh, production and um, producing some sort of, of uh, product also is very present in um, cheese. This is this wooden structure on the lower floor 
here we see the the six women that uh, you created this uh, narrative this story about and um, they actually produced this piece of cheese and somehow with their magic I don't know, their powers in their long, long hair. And uh, this is, uh, I, I find it so interesting and funny, the, the production process for you um, when you made this piece. Yeah, it was really confused, was intense, I, think. I think. Yeah, because I was, all that, I was constantly confused about what exactly I'm doing. Um, because what happened is I, I found out about this product that's um, from the 1800s, it's supposed to grow hair, it's a cure for baldness that was really made by the group of sisters uh, called the Sutherland Sisters. Here it is, uh, her hair fertilizer. And it's uh, historically like at the same time as chemical fertilizers uh, really became strong and the amount of uh, an acre, like how much you can grow the wheat, you know, the, the quickness and all that, everything kind of doubled in like hundreds. So the same idea was that you could also grow hair like that. So these sisters, they grew up, they're really bad farmers. They grew up on a farm upstate New York and this failing farm. And then they started kind of growing their hair instead of the, the, the land and um, would go to drugstores and shake their head, their hairs, and then sell this hair fertilizer, this medicine, like a cure. And they made a million dollars in 1886. That's their father. So he was also their <laughs> model. And, and um, they uh, really, yeah, overnight became millionaires. And this is like 150 years ago. And I was amazed, you know, it was after I made all these work about these products that I made up. And then there was like this real thing from 150 years ago that sounds like it's my piece, you know, before yeah. it actually <laughs> is. So I was like, I have to do something with it. But what exactly? Because I didn't really want to make a, mo like a narrative film. That was a little too much at the time. Mm -hmm. um, although I still think it's like, should be a movie about it. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, because they have all these crazy stories. They're like, they're, they're a little strange. And they all never married, lived together, had a lot of pets, uh, had kind of fascination with animals. Um, but in the end, it turned out that the product wasn't... The end of the product really was really like oil, a vegetable oil and alcohol and water or something like that. Yeah, there's like these, like their profit, this is like different kind of, oh, and then the modern kind of, medicine. But, and then I also became, um, online I found, um, I saw this image of um, this woman sitting with her dog. Yeah, this one. And I was like, wow, she's so amazing. I have to uh, meet her. So I actually found that she has a, a hair group, like an internet mm -hmm. um, long hair club. And her name is Lady Grace or Susie. That's her real name. But Lady Grace is her in online like mm -hmm. cyber name. And she was so nice and she emailed me back and she invited me to come to the hair convention in her house in Bushnell, Florida, which is <laughs> two hours from Orlando. You know, even Orlando is like, what, where is that? It's like really the middle of Florida. And I, but I went to the hair convention. I was really happy. And that's the picture that you, you saw. And there's all these men come and measure this woman's hair every year. And they have, like, they're really, and they're not hair fetishists, they're hair lovers. Because there's, like, I learned there's two groups online, and there's the hair fetishists and the, the hair lovers. And they don't mix at all. And the women that are in the hair fetish don't really, 
their rivals. But there's one woman, Leona, and she's both. Like she is friends with the, these long hair lover club, but also she's, she has an adult contact content uh, website, like soft porn, like with hair and all that stuff. So she... How many are they in this club? I have, depends. There's some women with not that long hair that want to be part. There's the wannabes and there's the real ones. And then there's like the a lot men. of men around it that are not fetishists or hair lovers. And um, so I went there. And then she also said, if I want, I can stay in this petting zoo near her. So I stayed there and then I became friends with the owner and he had a lot of land and animals. So I decided I'm going to move there and make this uh, farm. That's when I started building it, and I really kind of—I went alone. I drove my car from New York. I subbed my apartment, and I went to the, to Bushnell, and I basically stayed there almost a year. Now it sounds a bit crazy, but um, and I built most of the farm uh, by myself or with a friend, and I built the stuff according to the animals. I became really good friends with the goats there, and we uh, so I built this milking station around the the goats and. It was amazing. It was, you know, because I, I never really got to know America. Mm. Like that was for me living, really understanding what it means to to be American culture, like Middle America kind of culture. And um, you know, the only entertainment was to go to Super Walmart. For real, there was like no no movie theater or not even a restaurant. Maybe one or two restaurants. A lot of fast food places and Super Walmart, which became the biggest like attraction of going to shop. Uh, it's super more <laughs> oh. and you know, and I almost seem seem find uh, a little bit satisfied by being connected. I remember driving at night, eating um, a burger in my SUV, you know, just mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, I, I belong here, which is really funny because I don't want to. But but at the same time, you created this very idyllic kind of place with these women yeah. in in white dresses, and they they seem to. Uh, spending their days just taking care of uh, their hair, their long hair. And yeah, and that was also because after I spent all this time there, I they invited them to come and use the farm in a way, like live there for uh, a couple of weeks, which was more intense than the whole year, I think, of being with six women with very long hair. It was very... They are. <laughs> yeah, and because they, they formed a union against me in the second day of the shoot. The washing of the hair? Because they wanted to wash their hair. And they really, it was really interesting. They actually created a union and they said that they're going on, they went on strike until we sat and negotiated about their rights to wash their hair. And they said that their ambassadors of long hair had to look really good, the hair. And, um, and for you, that was not okay in the beginning because you had a very tight schedule? Or what was, was the reason that you didn't? It was also, I remember I was so overwhelmed by suddenly having everyone and shooting. And I remember calling Nicole Claxper on the second day. I was like, I actually need a little more help uh, with that. And I realized it's going to, and she was really sweet. Uh, the gallery was supporting this project. And uh, I was really overwhelmed with everything. So suddenly I had to get all these uh, extra people. That, that shot that you see that with a lot of people, that was not how I planned it. I thought that me and the cinematographer could just make it happen. But after a day, we just realized that all my work is going to go to trash if we don't shoot it right and all that. Okay. So we actually got a real film crew. And, um, and actually the, the structure, the wood that is used here, uh, that you used for filming, is part of the... Or the, the exhibition copy that yeah. we have here yeah. is actually the wood from here, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. 
absolutely. And so then, you divided so it. So basically, in the end, we negotiated about the hair washing. And I was also promised that whenever I talk to them, I have to say how amazing and mesmerizing their hair is. Which I <laughs> You had to say that? Yes, which I am saying now, that it is truly, it is yeah. truly amazing and mesmerizing. And It is, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Uh, and then they, yeah, we somehow found a way that they'll go wash their hair one at a time. And then we'll shoot that part w without one of them. So there would be like a rotating hair washing. But at a certain Action. point in the film, you also see that the hair is being washed, so you use yeah, it. Yeah, but that's not re that they that's didn't really fake. wash their hair. I see. Okay. I see. <laughs> but um, maybe now, when I see this picture of uh, of these six women, is like in your works, you you mainly have women as your characters. Is it also a, then about kind of? The, the labor aspect that is often present in your works, is that about more women labor? Or um, is that apparently. not as... <laughs> yeah, but is, is uh, that a... Yeah, in, I, in I think so. I mean, I think may, maybe. You know, I, I think that in, in the book there is... An, I, I always find that you wouldn't... If mostly men... Like you're kind of used to seeing men as the leading roles and then that's the question is never asked if it's about masculinity. It's just assumed that it's about human beings and then if it's about if there's more women then it's always you always uh, ask if it's about femininity or about feminism and all that so first of all i mean there are people and i'm a woman so it's easier for me to identify with female characters i guess yeah because maybe the female body uh, produces more mm -hmm. things so it makes sense to use uh, female bodies females too Thinking about how when now visitors, people come and see your show here or somewhere else, do you uh, in some way think that that women and men kind of experience this exhibition or your work in very different ways? Is this more appealing to one or the other? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I get more warmer reactions from women, maybe. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure, but maybe, possibly. Yeah. I think that we are kind of slowly getting to the end. It's going so fast uh, talking to you and there is still so, so much to discover in your works. Um, but I still would like to maybe finish up with uh, your work, Squeeze. You were talking about it just a little bit um, before, uh, just a moment ago. Here, just to give a short summary, it is again some kind of uh, structure, a factory-like uh, structure or a house where uh, different things are happening. There are different characters that perform in various ways and they seem to have all to have some kind of task in this, um, in this system. And uh, in the structure, there is makeup uh, being produced. And at the same time, the structure seems to have some connection also to places around the world, uh, a salad field and also a rubber farm uh, in India. In the end, everything is kind of smooshed together, the salad and the, the makeup and uh, the rubber is all coming into the structure. and. Um, being mixed together and then kind of swooshed together into this cube. And uh, you were talking before about that kind of creating this 
this object, this art object, out of rubbish um, somehow, or this, it's not very appealing, that um, you then make an art piece out of it. And where is it today? This is also it's interesting. It's in, in a safe, in a climate control safe in the Cayman Islands, mm -hmm. which is a ta tax haven, and a lot of people store things there. <laughs> And I, I thought it would be a good place for it. <laughs> and uh, the actual piece is sold in shares. So mm -hmm. there are seven shares in, um, in the sculpture. But because I own a controlling share, nobody could own, nobody could ever own it. So it raises this question mm -hmm. of, of ownership and also because so much art is in storage and nobody really sees it. Yeah. I thought it would be... Funny. Have you been there? Do you did you go there by yourself with this piece? Um, did you just <laughs> I go on like a, a yearly like you know visit okay. to like the Caymans. And it's still okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's quite well. Yeah, a little bit deteriorating, very slow. Um, for me, any object with it's never about the object. It's about everything around the object that makes something valuable. And yeah. in like a more recent piece, it just makes me think about seven. That's not here. It's a collaborate collaborative performance. But me and John Kester were doing this. Piece and we're in the end. It was supposed to be this like kind of explode, like a magical uh, explosion. And we were talking about, oh, it has to be so beautiful and like amazing and beautiful. And slowly, like we just realized, you know, and that was my part of the um, collaboration. He was we kind of divided it that, that there was no way that I can ever make a thing be like extraordinary beautiful. That it's always about how like you kind of lead to it and what you don't show and you know, that's always this kind of very, um, something that always escapes from you or something. I don't know if that makes sense, but so for me, the the value of an, every art piece is just, it's never in the actual piece, you know? I don't know, it's it's about- The history, the, everything. Yeah, that everything around, like the cultural, like the cultural value that's like assigned to it and, and all these other things. So it was, Part of the squeeze was actually to the actual pieces, everything around it, and the video, mm. and the object is uh, is removed. So, and also it was a way to inflate this value of the sculpture because because it's actually bought together, it it costs more than any other sculpture that I would make because it's, so it's a way to like kind of inflate this value of a thing and condense the value yeah. somehow. So it would it's, it's kind of a funny game or play of on on that. Maybe also to round up um, this particular piece is, for me, another thing that becomes very evident or uh, very um, yeah, evident in this piece is how even though all these characters always are, um, often are separated from each other by walls or sometimes they're just a f like groups of five people doing kind of the same work, but they're all somehow connected with each other. So although I've heard the comments somehow, oh, they, they, the women or the, the characters in these films, they, they seem to be so lonely. And, but I don't see that at all. I rather see that what is so beautiful in all this, that it becomes so obvious how we are dependent on each other and that we help each other somehow. And mm -hmm. there's this um, expression in, like in, in German that you say, um, one hand washes the other. Mm. And that is really, uh, like in, in Squeeze, you really actually literally have that, that these women in India are uh, putting their hands and arms down into holes. And in the structure, you have these Asian women uh, washing their hands and taking care of them. And uh, so there is this uh, really wonderful connection between them all, which I just 
kind of wanted to say that there is a very um, a beautiful thing about these pieces, amongst many other things. Literally, now to come to an end, I thought that also it would be just quickly nice if you would say just something about your project, Infinite Earth, mm. which is a project that you... It's part of your artistry, but also something that... Yeah, not quite. That's, that's why I said it's always weird because I'm actually trying to, to keep it separate. But it's just a foundation that me and a friend and an artist, Elona Harpaz, started in Berlin. And it's, it, was, it started as a way to uh, use art to somehow a little bit make a uh, real impact on mm -hmm. uh, maybe society's outside of the art world. So the first one is we did the, fir the first print that went to sponsor a, a looming center in India, in North India, uh, this Angora weaving center. And so all the funds from the prints were sent to a kind of a, um, a foundation, local women in this village uh, in Chamba, North India. And they started this looming center, which will teach classes and have and um, and it's funny because I went we went there and you know it's, it, they're growing angora bunnies and the looms that they work with really looks like look like part of my work and my idea was to escape from my work like I didn't want I wanted to go do something else for a little bit uh, and I was a little tired of being kind of in New York art world and I wanted to go do something else and then I go all the way to India and there's these machines that really look like my machines because they're all kind of these used pieces of wood that are kind of a little bit falling apart and these little bunnies that they take their hair, like oh. they don't kill the bunnies. No. They just brush their hair okay. and then they, they spin it and, they, and then they, look, they make um, Angora stuff from it. So it was really uh, crazy to go all the way there and discover again, like, oh, my work. So that was one thing and that was this kind of cyclical thing and then since then we did a bunch of, other like education projects and, and funding another like a sewing machine. This is a website, it's called Infinite Earth. And then, so that print is something that we sell in or and that all goes directly to the foundation in Berlin. And what are we seeing on the print? This is a structure that you built? Yeah, this is a structure that, that me and Alona, it's a collaboration we built. And it's a little bit like a map, a topographic map. It's a lot also about it was really fun to make the project and it's a little bit like a vacation for my own work mm -hmm. to to go and do something like that. It also doesn't have to be, it is an art piece, of course, but we thought about it as more like just a little less critical, not to mm -hmm. say that that kind of affects the overall thing, but it was just, okay, This the reason for this and the result is that not so much in the art world somewhere else. So it's, it's a kind of scope. Yeah. yeah, it was a little bit more loose and uh, fun to, to do. So. Well, um, it's going to be really amazing uh, to have your exhibition here now for the next four months, uh, the exhibition that is called Sneeze to Squeeze. Uh, we didn't even uh, get to that. Uh, all your amazing titles that uh, often uh, uh, make your your lips and tongue have to <laughs> work yeah, a little I really bit extra. Yeah, I really like that you said that, that, that it is in the end it makes your body work mm -hmm. in this mechanical way because it has to rhyme and that's really, I never thought about that, so that's cool. So there should be, I don't know, after Stockholm there might be something with I have to start, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, free, yeah. I think I have to maybe start a new rhyme thing, maybe. I think I kind of really exhausted it with the sneeze with the last one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Mika. Uh, this has been wonderful, wonderful working thank with you. you and um, thank you for taking the time also for this and sharing your thoughts. Uh, there is still so much to say, but thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much.